Hey, I'm Zen Hess, and you're listening to Currents and Religion, a new podcast being brought to you by the Department of Religion at Baylor University and by Baylor University Press. Thanks for listening today. In today's episode, two leading Asian American theologians join us to discuss the way they're thinking about race, racism, and the work of anti-racism theologically. Dr. Jessica Wai-Fong Wong is Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Azusa Pacific University, and I need to add, she earned her undergraduate degree here at Baylor University. She recently published the book Disordered, The Holy Icon and Racial Myths with Baylor University Press. Dr. Jonathan Tran is Associate Professor of Philosophical Theology here at Baylor University, and his 2021 book, Asian Americans and the Spirit of Racial Capitalism, was published with Oxford University Press. Doctors Wong and Tran, thank you for joining us on Currents in Religion. Thank you for having us. I'm excited to be here. It's great to be here. So at the most basic level, both of your books try to say something about why racism exists and what might be done to resist it or resolve it. But you both do something pretty distinct. So I'd, I'd love to just start by getting a lay of the land, what your books are trying to do. So Jess, would you go ahead and start? Absolutely. Um, so I should preface all of this by saying that um, the book itself is actually emerging pretty distinctly out of my own personal experience. So I grew up as a biracial Chinese-American kid in pretty white environments. Mm -hmm. And so when I was growing up, I really largely imagined myself to be white. Um, and it wasn't until later that I had that kind of experience that a lot of people of color do, that experience of racial interpolation, right, where... Mm -hmm you are seen as something other than how you see yourself. And that experience stuck with me. So even as I came to understand my identity in a more complex way and really embrace my Asian American identity, uh, I still was struck by uh, the, the way in which uh, visuality and race kind of function together hand in hand. And so as I studied theology, I started thinking about, well, are there Christian resources for thinking through these issues? And so I started looking into icon theology and noted this connection between body, spiritual economy, and politics. And the way in which the icon functions not only as a means of directing our devotion, but also as a threshold to draw us into a kind of divine economy right, that transforms us. That through participating in the divine economy, right, it's said to change not only our spiritual state, but also our mental and even physical state. You see right. that in like hagiographies. So what's interesting though, is during the middle ages, we also see that it's not only embrace of the icon that makes changes, but also rejection of the icon. Mm -hmm. So rejection of the icon is also a rejection of the divine economy. And with it, the embrace of its opposite, right? And so the same kind of transformations, but in the opposite way are occurring. The person who rejects the icon is said to become not only spiritually corrupt and mentally uh, uh, degraded, but also physically monstrous. 
And so in the, the Middle Ages, what we see is this, the way in which the physical body becomes a means of assessing internal spiritual order, right? Of being able to judge a person's uh, mental sociopolitical capacity and all of that kind of uh, playing a part in who is seen as belonging and who is seen as not belonging, who is seen as orderly and who is seen as disorderly. And so I use that framework. That's a, that's a long preface. Right? Yeah, yeah. I use that framework to consider, to make sense of the rise of the modern racial logic during the colonial period. Mm-hmm. So as the, the white, uh, as the white European colonizer comes in, both as the bearer of Christianity, but also that of Western civilization, he comes to take on this role as the holy icon of the Western world. Right. The bearer of uh, the divine economy, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so everybody else then is judged according to uh, how how closely they uh, they can manifest this uh, this white European identity. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then who is judged as, as being fit or unfit for for modern Western society right, is is determined by this this white icon. Um, and so the question that was really pressing for me when I was writing the book was, why are black and bro- why are black and brown bodies seen as inherently disordering and disorderly in modern Western society? And right. for me and my research, that was that was the answer, right? Looking at how uh, the white European male became the holy icon of the Western world, right? It, it gives us in- insight into why other people are judged as being so problematic, right? Yeah, so one of the things that that you that you make note of that I think just helps give some some sense of your starting point is that both iconoclasts and iconophiles believed that images did something. And so part of your project is to say, okay, well if if that's true, if images do communicate and shape societies or communities, then what image is shaping the Christian church or the American Christian church to be more specific or America in general. And so I loved one of your lines is that many of the problematic ways, and this is a quote, in which Americans tend to organize the world conceptually can be traced back not to willful paganism, but to a flawed theological imagination. So say a little bit more about that, about what is it that images do? What, what, how do they shape a culture or or an, how does the imagination play into our idea of what it means to be in relationship with one another? Oh, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, so it seems to me that our imaginations start to be shaped at a very, very young age. Right? We are introduced to certain images and stories and, and kind of narratives, both orally and written, um, that tell us who people are. Right. When you see this person, this is who this person is. And so certain mm-hmm. stories get attached to certain bodies. Right? And as a result of that, we learn how to uh, assess threat. We learn how to assess worth uh, and our, our very so- sociopolitical behavior uh, is is shaped by this way of imagining the world. Right. And so if we want to truly change the dynamics of of our society and our, our political world, then we need to learn how to change our imaginations. We need to learn how to reimagine the world. Right? And I think 
that not to jump ahead too far, but that is what God is inviting us into. Right. That is, if we understand Jesus to be the icon of God, right? That is what Jesus is inviting us into as a threshold into an alternative economy, as a threshold into God's true divine economy. Great. Well, I think that that gives us some sense of what you're what you're up to, and you've brought up economy and economics. So, Jonathan, you're doing something different. Um, you're also trying to give an analysis of race and racism and the way that anti-racist work might be carried out in, in America today. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what, what your book is doing? Sure. Uh, and j- I'm sitting here just thinking through Professor Wong's concepts, and they're just incredibly powerful and I think offer uh, significant explanatory power to describe the world in which we find ourselves. So yeah. um, just just to say that. Yeah, I mean, my book really is animated by a pretty basic question. Um, how do we dis- how do we explain the persistence of racism? Uh, mm-hmm. in, maybe in some of the idioms that Dr. Wong talked about. So let's say you you operate with a belief or an attitude towards brown people that they're inherently dirty. Um, wh- where do you get? Where does one get that idea? How does that? How is that obviously absurd set of concepts? You know, ingratiated in the human mind. Um, despite all the all the obvious counterfactuals sure. of daily existence in the world. And so my answer to the question about why racism persists is my answer is that racism persists because racism works. It does mm. things. It enables things. It facilitates things. Right. And so the argument would be something like this, right? We live in a world of breathtaking, extraordinary forms of inequality, domination, oppression. There are signs of these everywhere and obviously. Um, Mm -hmm. These are obviously morally shocking and abhorrent realities. And instead of asking a question like, why have we organized our world like this, uh, much less benefited from it? Instead of asking those questions, which would then lead to questions about the reorganization of our world, Mm -hmm. we gaslight those who suffer it. And we say, oh, it's on them, Right. right? And so again, to use some of uh, Dr. Wong's idioms, you know, the absurd idea that, you know, people of color are inherently dirty. Well, that that way of thinking is easier than thinking about things like this. Why do people in our city not have access to clean water? Right. Why do people in our city not have access to education? Um, how have we organized our political structure that folks are consistently and perpetually uh, disenfranchised from political processes? Um, those are much more difficult question, and it's easier to lean into the racism, um, lean into the kind of abhorrent attitudes and beliefs. And so um, Dr. Wong has kind of beautifully articulated this in another place where she talks about, you know, and she talks about this certainly in the book about the diseased imagination. And right. so my book is the attempt to articulate how the diseased imagination is cultivated concretely in the world right. in which we find ourselves and then how we might imagine a different world. And so you give us a couple of case studies um, in your book that that you try and it seems to me um, move us from uh, one way of understanding how racial what you're working with is racial capitalism. So how racial capitalism can be used to to kind of pit people against one another to to um, to make them kind of wage an internal battle against one another. And then you go to a second case study that I think reveals one way that the church might engage 
in the economically embedded forms of racism that we have. Could you just tell us a little bit more about your case studies and what you found? Sure. So the book is in some ways a sustained critique of what I call an identitarian framework on racism. And so an identitarian framework is a framework or story that reduces questions of racism um, to kind of taken for granted notions of race. So, and then tells the story of racism as say bad white people over it against people of color. And I think while that story is compelling and does explain a lot about our world, it also misses a lot of the complexities of how these things operate. For example, if we think of, say, inequalities in housing and we lean too heavily into the story of of redlining, the idea of, say, the racist uh, mortgage worker excluding black people from certain neighborhoods, we miss the large determinants of things of housing inequality. Uh, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, the uh, race theorist at Princeton University in her book, Race for Profit, shows that actually it works in a much more complicated way. Uh, the way I describe it is that most systems of inequality, racism doesn't lead, it follows. It mm. serves as ideological cover for those inequalities. And so if we tell the narrow racial identity story, we may think that the remedy is say, get, you know, have less white people around and elevate the status of people of color. And I'm not sure that that actually, well, I'm pretty sure that we've been trying to do that for about five decades. Um, And it hasn't yielded to the outcomes that we would think. And I think that that expresses some fundamental problems with that way of thinking. Mm -hmm. So I offer what I call political economic analysis that tries to get to the broader realities out of which race plays the kinds of roles uh, that Dr. Wong really well chronicles in her book, um, and how do how do we how do these things operate in the world? And then I say, if these are if these come down to largely political economic realities, then what is the political economic reality that Christianity has to offer in alternative? Mm-hmm. Now, before we get there, we have to acknowledge that most of the political economies of the church have been just been in bed with the racist, capitalist political economy of this country. And as I say in the book. It may be nothing more than an act of faith to imagine Christianity come, can yield to better outcomes. But I'm a sure. Christian, so what can I do but try to <laughs> imagine out those? And so I yeah. turned in the second half of the book to a church that tries to do this. Yeah. And what did you find? Uh, you know, to you, you find both the incredible forms of evidence of the ways racial capitalism have um kind of embedded themselves deeply into the very core of our society and in in every concrete form that matters to us, housing, education, healthcare. And so the problem for us right now then is to get out of them is not going to be so easy as identifying the redlining racist, mm-hmm. um, calling that person out and removing her from polite society it's going to be these broad scale questions about redistribution, reorganization. And when you realize how big a problem that is, you realize why we want the simple, narrow answers. Um, But what this church did is come to terms with that and then try to imagine the resources. Again, Mm. this is Jess's question earlier. What are the resources that Christianity can still bring to bear that offers an alternative telling of the story of the world in concrete ways that organize, say, counter icons, mm-hmm. different images of how the world actually is. Yeah. 
You are listening to a conversation with Dr. Jessica Waifong Wong and Dr. Jonathan Tran here on Currents and Religion. I felt like your case study on Redeemer Church in California, in a sense, felt like a kind of a case study of what Jess, you do towards the end of your book where you say, well, there's the iconic vision of Jesus and discipleship is built out of that. Um, and so you're seeing a kind of overlay of, of um, one church letting a, a, sh- a certain vision, a certain image um, shape the way that they exist economically in their world and they bear witness to a different ordering of economies. And so I think that there's something really lovely there. And I, I guess it also leads us just both to another point of overlap where both of you talk about the importance of the divine economy. Um, I think that you're using that phrase in different sorts of ways. So if you're both going to point us towards the divine economy as kind of a central theological anchor for addressing racism, how should we as Christians think with the divine economy about racism? You want me to take that one first? (laughs) Go for it. Uh, Okay, yeah. So I think, you know, we ha- we've had theologians talking about um, social Trinitarianism for a long time. Um, and, and I find there a lot of this work really quite powerful. Could you tell for maybe some listeners who are not as um, embedded in the theological conversations that are going on? Could you could you maybe just give us a brief definition of social Trinitarianism? Sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah. So basically how how our our understanding of how God exists socially, right? Not only within uh, within God's self as eminent Trinity, but also externally as economic Trinity, um, how that might model for us ways of being mm-hmm. in the world, right? And of course, the the largest or one of the major objections to social Trinitarianism is how do we know who God is if God is set apart from us, right? Is if God yeah. is wholly other, and you know. Uh, you know, Kathy Tanner's response to this is, well, we know because um, we can look at Jesus, mm-hmm. right? Because Jesus is second person of the Trinity, right? Is is the son embodied. And and so if we look at Jesus and we look at what Jesus teaches not and what teaches and what Jesus embodies, but also uh, what Jesus is inviting us into, right? As we think about entering into the body of Christ, I think that gives us a robust picture of what kind of social reality are we actually being invited into? Um, And we can add on top of that, of course, like how do we see the Holy Spirit working? At least, you know, scripturally, we can look at how is the Holy Spirit working in the act of Pentecost? How is the Holy Spirit working as it it presses, uh, you know, James to uh, engage with Cornelius? Like what kind of uh, transgressive, expansive movement are we seeing there mm-hmm. um, that might be a signal to us of what kind of work we are being called to. Not one, as, as Jonathan was saying, right, not one of exclusion, not one of, of redlining and saying, well, you're a racist, you don't belong, right? Mm-hmm. But how do we actually draw people in to right. this divine economy as opposed to simply exclude people who we, we identify as not fitting? For me, the uh, first 
people who used the phrase the divine economy was just the early church theologians. And so when they spoke of divine economy, they mean what we largely, what we Protestants largely mean by the gospel. What mm. is the story of save, Jesus' saving action or God's saving action in Christ? And so what's the gospel? The gospel is a story that creation exists insofar as it exists at all in God's gratuity, in God's grace, in God's plenitude. And so creation is always an expression of abundance. It never begins with a, in a deficit situation. For Christians, that means participating in the divine economy means participating in this logic of abundance, uh, that God is going to take care of us just like God did in creating us and in saving us in Christ. This runs almost exactly counter to the narrative of racial capitalism, which right. is a deficit mentality. Right. Uh, Heather McGee in her great book, recent book, The Some of Us, says that the downstream consequence of race thinking is a zero-sum analysis. A zero-sum analysis is the idea is that, that if anyone else gains, I lose. And so what I need to do is be hell-bent on acquiring as much and securing and maintaining. If you live in that kind of world, then you see everyone else as a threat and everyone is an opportunity for profit and exploitation. Sure. Uh, it, 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 it cultivates what you might imagine as a hoarding mentality. And insofar as I've earlier described racism in terms of racial capitalism, that is uh, forms of exploitation that use race as justification, then the divine economy is the more fundamental story of how the world actually is. Mm. Um, one of the most important theological claims about the divine economy is that that's the first story. That's the original story. It's not, say, a story that comes up later against the harsh reality of the world. Mm -hmm. It's actually how the world actually is. It's the truth. Of, it's the gospel. Yeah. And so what forms of predation, exploitation, domination are, are using, you know, Augustine, um, Gregory's language. These are privations of goodness. Mm -hmm. um, they're predatory, as Augustine talked about it. And so these are secondary distortions of a more fundamental good. So when Christians live into the gospel, they're not yanking into, you know, the sad story of the world, some imposed fairy tale. They're laying claim to what they think the world actually is. And so when they when they imagine their lives, because these are costly lives, right? Mm -hmm. They're not saying, well, I hope this is true. They're saying, I think this is actually the reality of things. It's all of you all that are exploiting uh, and dominating each other that are living in utter fantasy. Yeah. And for them, the reality is that truth, all, all lies are broken on their falsity. And so what redemption names is the truth of things. Those who live in a certain order, namely in participation to the divine economy, actually live, you know, with how the universe is actually set up. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I, I would like to. Yeah, I, I think I think that's exactly right. Um, and in many ways, right. The reality that many people live in, the economy, the ways in which they envision the order of the world is simply a lie. Mm -hmm. um, and part of uh, the process of discipleship right, is learning how to see. And we see this in scripture over and over again, right? This, this kind of reference to sight. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so much of I think our tra the transformation into which we are being called is a transformation of our sight such that we can actually learn how to see the world rightly. Right. Um, and 
you know, whether we want to use the language of icons or, or something else, right, that there are, there are resources for us, mm-hmm. right, to, to help retrain, redirect, uh, correct our site so that we can actually see the world as it truly is. Yeah, that's super helpful. Um, shifting gears just a little bit, both of you, to differing degrees, uh, flag how an overemphasis or an idolatry of racial identity can unintentionally undermine justice and anti-racist work. But neither of you, as far as I read you, are advocating a kind of colorblind approach to to anti-racist work. So could you say a little bit more about what it means to acknowledge, celebrate, live into uh, racial identity in your vision of um, anti-racist work? Or if if I'm misreading you, then feel free to correct me there too. Yeah, I mean, this is a complicated question. If it is the case um, in the and and with if you tell the story through racial capitalism, which I need to know is a kind of uh, development of the black radical tradition, mm-hmm. right? And and for kind of black Marxists specifically, right? Uh, their response to the gaslighting maneuvers that it's because of who you are racially, their response was the naturally logical one. Well, of course, it's not us. It's y'all. You came up with these categories of race to dominate us, to excuse your behavior, to lend it a veneer of respectability. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we see we see the game for what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you believe that, which I certainly do, then the question is, after you come to that realization, what does race come to? Mm-hmm. Uh, if its origins are in these forms of domination and justification, then what remains of race. So one answer is to say, well, if it has this history, let's just discard it. But what's the problem there? And this is your point about us not being post-racialists. Is that those iconog those iconographical <laughs> iconic <laughs> powers, those iconic powers have lasting power, then we need to maintain sites of visibility to understand what they're doing. And so to take race as a conceptual lens off the table can completely is to not see how these tools uh, of domination are operating. Uh, and so you need to keep them on site in sight for those reasons. There's an additional question that, you know, for people who are oppressed, who have found ways of reclaiming racial identity right. and it's thick histories of resistance, but also basic things like dignity, power, genius. Mm-hmm. Uh, our good friend uh, Vincent Lloyd is, is uh, releasing a book on black dignity along these lines. Then how do we think about that? Uh, and I'm not going to presume uh, on how black people should think about black racial identity, but I am, for me, I am invested in the question of what it means for me to claim Asian American racial right. identity. And my first question about Asian American identity is I'm not quite sure what it names mm-hmm. because it names, it begins with the absurdity of race as such. Right. So Jess and I are both Asian Americans, but we come from vastly different kinds of experiences. She's a biracial woman and has to carry all those kinds of burdens, but also possibilities of that. I'm I'm Vietnamese American. I came here as a war refugee. That's a very different experience. And yet somehow we're the same person because we're both Asian Americans. Right. So you see how that begins with certain kinds of absurdities that then we inherit are supposed to kind of live into. And so what I try to do is to try to imagine Asian American identity as an important thing, but a highly contested thing, mm. and try to imagine what are the political possibilities coming out of it. One of the things I'm pretty committed to in the book is that 
the answer for us can't be forms of racial nationalism. And let me just say something about this. You know, in the last three or four years, we've seen a huge spate of anti-Asian American violence. And my concern is both that violence, but the available scripts for us to name it and to protect ourselves from it and then to push beyond it. Mm. One script available is forms of Asian American racial nationalism that is going to double down on us as a group in and of itself. Mm-hmm. How do we lay claim both to our history, but also to the history of the concept of Asian American, which is a multiracial solid, uh, a claim of solidarity and coalitional politics. So how do we both claim the history, uh, but also rearticulate it in different ways? And hmm. this, as you can imagine, is an enormously uh, challenging, but important and promising set of conversations to be had. Yeah. Jess, what would you say? Well, it's hard to follow that. That was fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I, I suppose I'll say, I, I won't say too much, but I'll I just say that um, I think to combat uh, or, or to problematize, to identify the problems of the, idol- the idolatry of race, right, or the idolatry of, um, of whiteness, or however you want to put it, right, is, is not the same as dismissing diverse identities, right? That that there that it's possible to celebrate particularity while at the same time um, recognizing that in fact the, the idolization of race uh, diminishes particularity in, in many ways, right? Like if we idolize whiteness, then we are pushed into this, this trajectory of everyone trying to become that, right? Because because it is marked with a sense of holiness. Um, and you know, to, to bring it back around to uh, a you know, theological perspective, you know, if, again, if we look at the Trinity, we see the possibility of uh, a unity that is nonetheless diverse, right? It, there is no collapsing of persons within the Trinity, and yet there's the possibility of uh, this kind of uh being with and for the other and bound together in love. So I don't think we need to be the same in order to be together, I guess is the basic way of saying it. Um, But I I think that Jonathan is absolutely right that there is a danger uh, in the counter idolization of race, you know, that is attempting to combat the idolization of whiteness Um, because there is the same temptation to, or the same kind of proclivity to exclude Right. So how do we celebrate our diversity? Why, how do we celebrate our identities and, and uh, what we might have in common with certain people um, and celebrate those cultures while at the same time um, not idolizing it in a way that becomes a, an inverse reiteration of the, the very problem we're, we're trying to push back against? Yeah, and you see this programmatically in our two books. Jess has a powerful moment at the beginning of her book where she says, Look, morally, we're committed to getting clear on what's happening for black and brown people. As an Asian American theorist, I need to get clear of that to help me understand how to get clear about myself. And that's absolutely critical. And that moral work, we've really just begun to scratch the surface on that. That's right. Um, and what I've done is is taken a, a similar angle. I mean, it's taken a similar set of questions, but a slightly different angle. And I basically have said, why is it the case that as an Asian American who has experienced, I would describe as a fair amount of racism, mm-hmm. how is it that 
when I enter into the discourses of anti-racism, I experience what I describe as a second marginalization. Right. Marginalization mm-hmm. first from racism, but then a kind of marginalization within anti-racism, mm-hmm. where my racism in the first marginalization doesn't seem to count. It almost doesn't even register. Right. Um, and so I approach this set of questions from that angle, but I understand it's just to be a different angle onto the same set of pheno- you know, phenomena that we're both really interested in. And, and I'm guessing for both of us driven biographically from our histories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think that question that you're raising, right, of, of what is the place of the Asian American in, in justice work, not only justice work for and about the Asian American, but justice work in general, right? How do we participate with a real sense of ownership in the larger conversation uh, around anti-racist or justice work? Because I think it's true to say, right, that that Asian Americans have been largely excluded, or at least or at least mm-hmm. sidelined from the conversation, right? You can you can be here, but as a support. You can be here, but in the background. Um, and the question I think we need to to wrestle with is why. Right. And what kind of and I think this is what Jonathan does so well in his book is he identifies the very uh, the the potential downfalls, the very nature of the concept of race and how embedded within it. Right. Are is is the binary. Right. And and Asian-Americans, of course, are kind of stuck in between. Like, where do we belong? Um, And so we can't fully identify as black. We can't fully identify as white. Then do we really have a place or a voice? In this conversation. Well, both of these books offer us provocative, important, and creative engagements with these sorts of questions, and I'm grateful to you all for writing them and also for taking time to talk with us. So thank you, uh, Drs. Wong and Tran, for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks again to Professor Wong and Professor Tran for joining us for this conversation. If you found what they had to say interesting, insightful, or thought-provoking, I'd encourage you to pick up their books and maybe to share this episode with someone that you think might like it too. Now, I'm going to turn things over to Dave Nelson, who's going to introduce you to an author of a new Baylor Press book. You're listening to The Elevator Speech, an occasional feature of Currents in Religion, a Baylor Religion Department and Baylor University Press podcast. I'm your host, Dave Nelson, Director of Baylor University Press. Today on The Elevator Speech, we're joined by Chloe Starr, Professor of Asian Theology and Christianity at Yale Divinity School and editor of A Reader in Christian Theology. Professor Starr, thanks for being with us today. What's your elevator speech for a reader in Christian theology? What's the big idea animating your book? Thanks very much, Dave. So the reader in Chinese theology, it brings Chinese theology to an English-speaking audience for the first time to gather together 35 authors over 13 centuries, uh, from the 8th century through to present-day church leaders and academics. Um, So it's a selection, it's an anthology of Chinese theology, and it's actually based on a Chinese anthology um, by uh, Professor He Guanghu and Daniel Young, produced out of Beijing and Hong Kong. 
So it provides a history of Chinese theology with example texts from across the whole swathe uh, of history since uh, the Church of the East in China in the 7th, 8th century through to contemporary. Um, it also gives insight into the main themes and trends in Chinese theology. So it looks at things like Confucian Christian dialogue or church-state relations, which have been some of the important features. It's just mainland China, this volume. So the China we're defining here is just mainland China. The books, the reader starts in the pre-modern, in traditional China, and it has five pieces, for example, from the 17th century, when there were European Jesuits at the Chinese court. Then the second section is revolutionary and nationalist China, and um, so that's the early 20th century. And then the third section is living contemporary theologians and authors. It concentrates on periods of theological flourishing. So the texts are concentrated in that Jesuit era in the early 20th century and in the 1990s onwards. So some people say, you know, what is Chinese theology? Uh, why do we need a volume of Chinese theology? Well, Chinese theology, like all theology, speaks to its own context. So, for example, in the late Ming, um, Chinese officials and scholars were debating the nature of the soul or metaphysics and asking, you know, why do I have to get rid of my concubines before I can be baptised? Or in the early 20th century, one of the big questions was what it means to be a Chinese Christian when anti-imperialist movements were really strong in China and creating this anti-Christian sentiment. So Chinese theology is particular in the questions it asks in its interest in the relationship between Marxism and Christianity, for example, which isn't something animating US debates just now in theology. In its context, in the philo philosophical and the religious history and questions it asks, and also in its form. So Chinese theology is written in Chinese literary forms, whether that's um, notes, letters, sermons, jottings, but not just essays in the, and, and grand tomes like we see a lot of Western theology. So why would we produce such a book? I mean, I'm excited to bring Chinese theology to a much wider audience. I think that's really important. The, ch the church in China has an awful lot to say to our understandings of our own theology. And of course, the church in China in itself is a huge entity over centuries. The book in, uh, includes both Roman Catholic and Protestant writers. Um, it includes both what we might call now house church and mission church and state church authors. So it covers a lot of ground in, in, in what it brings to readers. Um, it enables people to use these texts for teaching purposes and for their own personal reading. If you know, It could be a spiritual, devotional thing to read some of these essays. So we've changed the composition a little from the English text because some of these authors have pieces that they've written originally in, in English, so we've switched those in. And by adding two more women authors, I've tripled the number of female theologians, I'm afraid, in there. So the book is here to open up dialogue, to help readers see and understand Chinese theology, and also to help readers understand their own theology and its context better through this. It's been a huge effort. It's a team effort. I've had a, a team of translators helping me with the modern translation pieces. And Baylor Press has done a huge amount of copy editing work and lots of time on this. It's, it, you know, it's a great big volume for the money. Um, each chapter has an introduction 
to help orient readers. I've written a, an introduction to the author and to the period in each case. So we hope that this is something you can dip into as well as, you know, if you're a student, you might want to read many of the pieces. If you're a general reader, you might want to choose which period you want to read into. But I think it brings something to everyone out of Chinese theology. Wonderful. Thank you, Professor Starr, for sharing your elevator speech with us. You've been listening to The Elevator Speech, an occasional feature of Currents in Religion, a Baylor Religion Department and Baylor University Press podcast. I'm Dave Nelson, Director of Baylor University Press, and my guest today has been Professor Chloe Starr, editor of A Reader in Chinese Theology, now available from Baylor University Press. Hey again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Currents in Religion, a podcast brought to you by the Department of Religion at Baylor University and by Baylor University Press. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with someone that you think might like it. Subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes. And if you want, leave us a rating to let us know how we're doing. Until next time, take care.